I'm Liz Logan, and you're listening to Collecting Culture, a podcast about passionate collectors and the objects they love. Today, I'm excited to introduce our very first bonus episode. Earlier this month, we released episode 10, The Mysteries of Old Letters, which was an interview with collector Hallie Bond, who collects letters written roughly between 1900 and 1960. Hallie shared a few of her favorite lines from these missives, but we just couldn't get enough of the private details of these strangers' lives. There are deep longings, frustrations, and flirtations, along with just the typical routines and annoyances of everyday life. We thought these letters were worth hearing in full, so we asked two actors to interpret them through voiceovers. First up are letters from May, who is writing to her husband, Artie, a traveling salesman for Regina, a vacuum cleaner company. Hallie called these letters a great example of everything letters can offer. Here are four of May's letters read by Jane Kramer. March 31st, 1939. Dear Artie, I'm just finishing up work for the day and I'm taking a few minutes to dash off this letter before going home. We are swamped with work here at the office. I think Murray's going crazy. All the inspectors were out until 5 o'clock working cases, and then when they came back to the office, he tells them we're swamped with work and should concentrate on getting as much work out as possible. Then he turns about and has the men unload their cases on the stenos and gives two men the day off tomorrow, Saturday. Right now, I'm carrying over 28 cases to write tomorrow morning, Saturday. Well, how's everything up in Albany? Don't make too many sales and make the boys feel too badly. I hope you have a nice room, in a nice, respectable place. You forgot your armbands, so I'm enclosing them for you. You also forgot the alarm clock, which is not enclosed. Please don't skimp on your food allowance, and get plenty of sleep. I received your wire yesterday morning and was thrilled to hear from you so soon. I'm glad you made the trip safely, without my guiding hand. Last night, Stuart took me home from the office. What will the neighbors say? And my husband, not out of town 24 hours yet. Nothing eventful has happened here. Mom received a letter from Bud, postmarked Philadelphia. Write and tell me all about what you're doing and whatever news you have. Love, May. P.S. My address is 705 Broadway, Patterson, New Jersey. Moi, 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 moi. April 4th, 1939. Darling, I take it all back about being renovated. You see, I hadn't heard from you at all except for your wire. I was very worried when I didn't receive any word on Monday. I thought perhaps you'd started for Patterson Saturday night, and I didn't know what to think. Yesterday, Monday, Mom received your card in the afternoon mail, and still nothing for me. Did she get a kick out of that? I received your letter at the office this morning, Tuesday the 4th, and was I glad to hear from you. I thought you'd forgotten all about your wife. 
Traveling all over Upper New York State for business must be a terrible grind. Do you think it will work out all right? Or would it be better to take a little less and not have to work so hard? I hate to think of you being all tired out every night. Very little has happened here to date. Rowan has sent in three orders. He certainly is going to town on those lights. Bob Ream is driving a taxi at the Fort Lee Plaza, not making out very well. We've only received one card from Bud, that being mailed at Philadelphia. I phoned your mother this morning and gave her the news. Drop her a line. Noon hour, I received your card, which I perused with much interest. Schoen told me today that the office is planning on giving me a farewell dinner. I told him that I would rather they didn't do anything about it, but he said that everything had been arranged. Well, I hate that. It has been very raw and cold here, but we haven't had any snow. I'm supposed to go over to New York to a fashion show with Marty tomorrow night, but I'm not very keen about it. Now, her mother's developed a cold, and perhaps we won't be able to make it. I hope. I can hardly wait until Saturday. Why? So that I can see my husband again, and hold him and tell him how much I've missed him, and how much I love him. This business of being a merry widow isn't all it's cracked up to be. I miss him dreadfully. It's cold in bed, too. Please, Artie, take it easy coming home Saturday night. I'll be waiting for you. This Sunday, we had chicken and everything, just in case you came home. Keep well and happy. Love, May. Mwah, 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 mwah. P.S. Snow White, the luncheonette cat, is walking about in a delicate condition. Pretty soon it will be Snow White and the seven orfs pring. Let it go, let it go. I pulled this on George, and he was disgustipated. April 12th, 1939. Darling, how is every little thing? Little? Hmm. I haven't received any word from you yet this week, aside from a card mailed last week, but I guess you are very busy and tired. Murray got an answer today from the home office concerning my vacation. You know I've been trying to get an allowance from the company for my two weeks vacation period. The memorandum from the home office stated that in view of my long and highly satisfactory service, <clears throat> They agreed with him that I should be given some consideration. They're going to make an exception of my case and allow me four days' vacation, one day for each month this year. Can you imagine? I laughed right in Murray's face and told him that it was the cheapest thing I'd ever heard of. They really shouldn't be so darn considerate. You see, vacations don't start until June, and because I'm a month and a half shy of it, I'm not entitled to vacation. Mr. Newsom, assistant manager of our Newark office, phoned today, and I told him I was leaving. He was very sorry to hear it, and said that if I'm interested, he'll do everything he can to find something else for me. He has a lot of insurance connections in Newark, and perhaps he can find something. He likes me, and I'm sure he'll be on the lookout for something. I told Murray about it, and he got all excited about it, and said, You know I asked you if you would be interested in part-time work here. 
I told Murray I certainly would not work for 25 cents an hour, and he said, of course he wouldn't expect me to work for what the other girls are getting. Then, if I do take part-time work, I won't get the unemployment insurance. I told Murray that I don't think I was being overpaid any, and perhaps now that I don't have anything permanent, I may be able to find something much better, and then kick myself for working for him all these years. Well, we will see. My latest for Adamson is Rhett Butler Adamson, The Goon with the Wind. How is my darling? I can hardly wait for Saturday so that I can see him again. This Monday, I certainly will not let him forget anything, because I am going to get up and make his breakfast. Love and kisses, May. Next, we have Dick, who is writing to Dorothy. She's in Cleveland, and he's in New York City. When Dick and Dorothy aren't writing about mundane matters like the cost of rent, these old love letters can get pretty juicy. A couple of notes for context. At one point, Dick writes about Vandeveld and tells Dorothy which pages of Vandeveld's books she should read. He's most likely referring to the Dutch gynecologist Theodore Hendrik Vandeveld and his popular book, The Ideal Marriage, Its Physiology and Technique, which was translated into English in 1930. The book suggests that men should tutor their wives in the erotic arts, and it provides all the charts and diagrams that a husband would need. The letters also mention Henry Havelock Ellis and Richard von Kraft Ebbing, a doctor and a psychiatrist respectively, who also authored books on human sexuality. Here are three of Dick's letters to Dorothy, read by Sean Schaffner. Wednesday, April 16, 1952. Dear Dorothy, Because tomorrow, as it turns out, will be one of my busiest days, and because I think that I may get a letter from you tomorrow, I'm sending you just a brief note today to let you know I'm thinking of you. I don't know whether it is wise or not, but I feel impelled to tell you that I am in what may grow into a furious battle with X number four. I never dreamed that controversies could grow more heated after a divorce than before. If I can keep a firm grip on myself, I may be able to avoid that on the surface, but things will smolder down beneath. Unless you want to hear them, I'm not going to pain you with the details. But somehow I wanted to get this off my chest, and you are the only one I want to tell. Even my lawyer can give me only the commercial form of sympathy. There is no change in my plan to be in Cleveland May 4th, and won't be, unless something direer comes up. I don't believe I told you, but it looks as if I can manage the trip without borrowing on that insurance. I hope that will please you. The picture that the office boy took of me flubbed, to use his word. After all, he's only a student, and the photography is only an incidental part of his course in journalism. I'm awfully sorry, but you must have the snaps of me by now, and before long you'll see the original himself, if you're still willing. So if I can't immediately reply to the letter I'm hoping for tomorrow, please try not to mind too much. I'll write Friday whether I hear from you or not. 
Sincerely, Dick. May 31st, 1952. Oh, my dear one. You knocked me out of my chair. That's what you did with your quick tease, your delightful way of getting even. I stood bolt, upright. I wrung my hands. I hugged myself. I surrender. I won't be naughty again. Until next time. I wasn't going to send you Vandeville until you said I might. Now you've said send it in an unmistakable way. But it will have to wait till Monday. The post office is closed this afternoon. I knew the mail would be late today owing to the rain and the accumulation over the holiday. And it was. It was 11.30 when it came, but oh boy. There were two letters from you which made me ever so happy. In Vandeveld, I think you'll be interested in his definition of coquetry on page 149, but don't look it up in your dictionary. Mr. Webster didn't know as much as Dr. V. Coquetry is one of the things I have always been searching for, and I think you've got it. Plenty of it. Other authorities than V divide it into three levels, the emotional, and the intellectual, as well as the physical. I think V would string along with them, probably laying the most emphasis on the psychic factor of the quality. He just didn't happen to think of this three-way breakdown, although I am sure he had it in the back of his mind. Because of problems that the next 10 years will pose, I suggest that you pay attention to what he has to say on pages 108, 109, 110, 111, and 112. These are far from the only reasons I'm sending you the book. You'll probably find that chapter 8 of part 3, beginning on page 144, is uh, the most fascinating section. Toward the back of the book, you will notice some pencil marks. Please pay no particular attention to them. I did not try to erase them because I do not want to keep anything back from you. I cannot recall why I marked these passages, though of course they are true enough. I bought the book some months before I met Marie. She has dipped into it, but never seemed to give it much thought. Probably thought she was too good a psychologist for anybody to tell her anything. The incident at the library makes good reading. Oh, you must have quite a time there. Mr. Ellis is sound, full of wisdom. Although I have never read one of his books, I have read many quotes therefrom, and I get the impression that you would have to read more than one of his writings to learn as much as V has packed into a single volume. As for craft egging, you must have got a wrong impression of whatever I said. I don't know much about him and dimly confuse his doctrines with Freud's. I think there's a mention of him in Vittles. I'm happy to hear Jan is better. And mighty sorry you have a chest cold. You need old Dr. Runyon. At any rate, in New York, you won't have to tend a furnace. That brings us to your second letter, May 29th. I am sort of up a tree on that furniture. It may be too late to get it. Without the battle, my lawyer says isn't worthwhile. 
I could stand living there, if you could. And it wouldn't have to be for long, if it turns out that I get the apartment after all. By now you must realize that I have come to a firm opinion that Mabry will not stay with me, that she will not go to CCNY. I am convinced that Marie is throwing every possible block into the path to prevent Mabry's custody and even fealty from reverting to me. We might as well consider that settled. The apartment is in a nice neighborhood, a few stops from the Columbia campus. The objection is that it is on the fifth floor, with no elevator. It is called a five-room apartment, contains a kitchen about the size of yours, with a good gas stove, a fairly decent sink with a built-in wash tub, a brand new last fall Electrolux refrigerator, ample cupboards and shelves, a bathroom with a tile floor, a non-built-in tub, and an alleged shower attachment. A small room, about 8 by 9, used by Mabry. A living room, about 10 by 12. A bedroom, about the same size. A small room, maybe 9 by 10, which is now a nursery. A longish corridor. Marie has said she would take the toaster, irons, mixer, and sewing machine. She said she would leave her radio phonograph, which is a pretty good one, an Admiral Table model. Nothing was said about the vacuum cleaner, which is pretty well shot anyway. I won't describe the furniture unless you want me to. Suffice it to say that it is fair, none new, and that the apartment is about as full as it can hold. If you weren't in the picture, I'd still be in a dilemma about the apartment and furniture. It would be far more space than I would need, but might be a good investment. I just don't know. I'm not looking at any picture without you in it. When Marie is away, she's careful to have somebody there to stay with Mabry. Otherwise, the agreement might be violated and her custody upset. As you surmise, she is very, very clever. She has a rumor, also named Barbara, who may buy the furniture when she graduates from Columbia this June and marries. The rent... $62.50. Compares with about $85 i am paying now. The phone and gas and light and the $62.50 becomes about $75.50. As for your earnings, don't worry. I'm sure we'll make out what with this and that. I don't want you to work any more than you have to, nor any longer than necessary. That would be until I no longer have to support Mabry. Four years and a bit unless she marries or becomes self-supporting. And maybe we'll get some kind of break before then. Who can tell? I think you are right about a morning job. I think you could earn as much as $25 a week here for a five-hour day. If you want, I'll send you the entire Times Help Wanted section. New York schools let out at 3 p.m. As for my hours... I know we can manage, if we both try hard, but remember, they are the hardest thing we have to face, if I may reiterate some more. You have painted a most intriguing picture of your palm reading career. I'd love to see you in that costume, love to see you at it, but I'm sorry to say that I'm pretty sure palm reading is against the law here. Forgive me for putting that so bluntly. It's unpleasant to have to do it after you have dazzled me so with your black velvet. 
I'll try to keep something like an option on the apartment and furniture, although frankly, at this moment, I can't decide what to do about it. I have to think some more. Marie will be back June 2nd, I understand. I may, or may not, learn something to our advantage then. Tomorrow, I'll write you a short letter. Monday, my foreshortened day, I'll be lucky to write at all. Tuesday, I may have to go see Marie, so prepare for one or two days in the middle of next week with a minimum of letters, but remember that writing to you is what I'd most like to be doing, unless it were talking to you and touching you. And thank you for the shoulder. Of course, I still want it. I'll always want it. It's a big comfort, even though the physical fact of it has to wait a while. Your loving guy, Dick. P.S. Please cross out a paragraph in a recent letter in which I asked you to help me plan more about our future. You're doing it already. It isn't the first time you've anticipated my wishes. Ah, Dorothy. (laughs) You're such a wonderful mind reader. August 8th. 1952. Dearest Dorothy, so you telephoned. I love my love with an F because she is feminine, fascinating, and fickle. Fickle in mood, I mean, not in affection, because she is also faithful. I mean, she is a coquette, in the finer sense that I pointed out to you some while back. From your first big no letter, March 26th, to your last one, August 5th, it is 132 days. That is five days more than a multiple of 25 and a third, but I can think of several ways to account for the discrepancy. Anyway, you will remember that I told you quite a while ago that I thought you would say no a thousand times. So we have only 990 odd to go. The TV lady is not the ideal woman for me. She is little more than a grandmother to me. I would rather marry a cold potato. The necktie is the loveliest I have ever seen, let alone had. It is an exquisite taste, and that means your taste. It is quite a hunk of color for me, but I can take it, darling. From you, I can take all the color you've got to give. That's quite a lot. I shall wear it and glow with pride. It will make the office necktie champion envious because he hasn't the taste to appreciate it, but I have. And I do. The myriad fleur-de-lis give it a regal look, and may the good Freud help me discover what they mean. (laughs) You gave me the soap because I admired it so. That simply was an old Spanish custom. You gave me the beautiful gold and pearl heart, and that was a symbol You gave me your heart, and I intend to keep it. By the way, the package was handed to me just after I had talked to you tonight. I have some bad news, which I will tell you right away. I also have what is beginning to look like some very good news, but it may be that I should save it for about six months. The bad news is from my snooplings. The Ohio divorce action was filed, but has not been completed. My advisors consider that it is a case of what they call leverage. 
I might add that I am truly impressed with their efficiency and acuity, and with the reasonableness of their charges. This means that the $16 a week is relegated to the indefinite future. So I don't know either. I don't know what we can do. Obviously, we shall have to wait and see. There is much more to tell from diverse fronts, but I can't seem to get my head clear enough to tell it tonight. Please be patient with me. Fortunately, I had had five and a half hours of sleep when you telephoned. Forgive me for mentioning it, but if you had waited until 9.30, I would have had seven hours. The house telephone service is from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m., but I was overwhelmingly happy to hear from you. It gave me hope. And while there's hope, there's life. Before you called, I had been lower than a cellar. You know that phrase? From a song in Annie Get Your Gun? But now I shall put on my necktie and hold up my chin and strut like a cat full of canaries. Remain friends. We shall remain man and woman. I can take your thousand times no and go on from there. And as long as you want me to be, I shall remain your loving guy, Dick. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love it if you'd subscribe, rate us in your podcast app of choice, and tell your friends. Or you can show us your own collection by tagging Collecting Culture Podcast on Instagram. We'll be back next month with another collector.